New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Well, I'm really excited to be here and speaking particularly into this context of renewing minds. I just want to say massive thank you to Sharon as well, because, you know, what's, what's really... Um, I've been working in the mental health sector now for about 17, 18 years, running the Mind and Soul Foundation, and, and I've been recommending her book uh, for a long time. But you know, that, that's one of the first times I've heard uh, a testimony about psychotic illness on a main stage. So thank you to New Horizons for hosting that, because I think that's a sign of uh, a changing culture. I think that's really... Uh, that's a really significant step forward, and I'd love to see that happening in other, in other settings like this uh, in the UK. Uh, and I'm just also so thanks, thankful for her testimony, because that actually unlocks uh, so much shame and stigma. And I think we've been you know, very aware of the fact that there's been changing conversation around anxiety and depression, particularly, which has now become more acceptable in Christian settings, but there's been a sort of reserve of, of stigma for people with serious enduring illness. And... Um, and it, it, it's so unhelpful. So just encourage you to continue the conversation and do support her writing uh, with the next book. I think it's going to be amazing. Well, tell me a bit, tell you a bit more, more about myself. Um, you know, every day begins with that frantic um, struggle to try and get enough food and water into my three children to set them up for the day. Uh, there's that kind of anxiety as a parent, like how, how can I enable them whilst they're sort of trying to get their stuff together, trying to sort of push Weetabix into my six-year-old and like making sure my 11-year-old who plays football every single moment of every single day that he's not working to like make sure he's hydrated properly. You have these like responsibility moments as a parent. And then like whilst I'm eating like one piece of toast like in a rush and trying to sort out our small Datsund who's called Magnum, um, <laughs> I, I'm, I, might, I might pick up my phone when I really should be picking up my Bible and I'll, sort of, I'll, I'll swipe through cat memes you know, you will, you will be confronted by cat memes too. They'll say things like, don't wish for it, work for it. Or if you want something you've never had, you have to do something you've never done. Or even get motivated by the fear of being average. And you're like, no, I refuse those in the name of Jesus. Like, that's not how I'm going to begin my day with cat memes that are driving me towards hard performance. And so many of our lives uh, experience this kind of rattle round of statements and slogans that say, hey, you're really not enough. You've not done enough. You've not achieved enough. You know, you're not impressive enough. You've not made a significant impact. And, and we spiritualize those too and say, well, I've not really fulfilled the things that the Lord uh, wants for me. I've not achieved those things that he longs for me to achieve. But then we laugh in our heads at those kind of statements. Well, I do. I kind of go on with my day, trying to press into grace. And then I'll get to the school gates and say, kids, I love you. Just be yourselves. Just do your best. And then suddenly from the kind of the bowels of my stomach will arise a great statement like, do something amazing today that your future self will thank you for. And then I'm like, No. Where did that come from? Like, how did that erupt out of me? Like, where did that appear from? We're so overwhelmed by this desire to achieve more, to put on more, to drive for more. And I wonder if the church in Galatia had similar problems to me. It, it, it's fascinating to me that in, in Galatians 1, we have this sort of initial doxology in verse 3. Paul always starts blatantly with an agenda. 
Like, he, he doesn't write first, Dear Auntie Flo, how are you? How are things? How's the family? You know, how's the garden growing? He's straight in there with, Dear Auntie Flo, please give me some money. You know, he, he's like, he's straight in with the upfront agenda. And so here, Paul says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The agenda that Paul has for the church in Galatia is right there, right up front. He's saying, I'm going to remind you both of two things, grace and peace to you. Because it strikes me that you have forgotten the essence of what the gospel really means. So this doxology introduces the answer to the question that he is then going to propose. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue you from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He could have just stopped there and it's been postcard to the church in Glacier rather than a full letter. But he kind of expands beyond. But then we see this challenge because the church in Galatia, modern-day Antioch in Turkey, was a church that had been planted by Paul but visited by Jewish Christian missionaries. And these Judaizers had followed Paul around and begun to reintroduce some of the concepts of the old law as a kind of anti-gospel to the gospel of grace that Paul has been presenting to them. This church knew God's grace story, and yet there was something within them that couldn't quite give up the idea that they had to work for love, they had to work for value, that they had to work for approval, and that they had to work for significance. They just couldn't accept that it was enough to put your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. Paul writes to them in verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You know, in London, they, um, we have really small gardens, normally courtyards. So in home base and B&Q, they actually sell you a, a shorter hose. We call that a London hose. And um, the thing is, every proud gardener in London wants to believe that they've got a large garden. And that's why they sell you a London hose. Because you, you, you plug it in, and then you'll sort of stroll forward and try and water the plants at the back of your garden. But, oh, oh no, you've, you've reached the end of your hose. So you kind of, you know, you're right there, sort of trying to spray the plants at the back of your garden. It's only about 12 at 6, but, you know, you still feel like you're, you know, you're, you're master of your own grass. And um, here I am in my London garden, and I'm, I'm, I'm plugged in, and I'm, I'm spraying the plants, and uh, my six-year-old has a habit of standing. I've got one of those sort of flexible, expandable London short hoses. And my six-year-old likes to stand on it subtly. And, uh, and, and the flow therefore ends. But, you know, my, my temptation is always to believe that the water's been turned off at the tap. You know, to go back and check. You know, is it still on? Have I unscrewed it properly? Did someone turn off the water? The trouble is invariably that either my son is standing on the hose or there is a kink in the pipe. Have you noticed, you know, if you're, if you're no, no doubt Northern Irish gardens are much larger than London gardens. So you'll, you'll have that struggle of the distance. I'm not envious at all. You know, the distance and, and you'll pull the hose just that little bit harder and then the water will go off. But you'll find that actually the, the, the hose has folded over on itself and the water's dried up. You know, so often in our experience, we believe that God has turned off the tap of his grace and we need to pull the hose that little bit harder. But actually, it's incredibly unlikely that God has turned off the tap. The issue is the kink in the hose. 
And Paul's experience of the church in Galatia is that labor, that, that effectively perfectionism, this work for love, was the kink in their spiritual house. Paul says in verse 3 to 5, grace and peace to you as we know this antidote, this, this reality of his goodness, and yet the hose is turned on, but the grace of God has stopped flowing amongst the people. This is the kink in the pipe. And in verse 7, Paul says that this different gospel is really no gospel at all. The Greek word for gospel, quangelion, means literally good news. So when Paul says this is not good news at all. He's saying this is non-good news. He's saying this is an anti-gospel that you're receiving. But it was given in good faith by a group of people who effectively wanted to see the church grow. And I believe that the problem that the church faces today is a continuation of the same problem of the church in Galatia. That somewhere within us we cannot accept that it was enough just to put our faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. The Jewish Christians were offering this need to work for love, for approval. It wasn't enough to accept good news as it was. As I said earlier, I've been specializing in emotional and mental health within the church uh, for the last 17 years or so. Partly as a result of my own experience of an acute PTSD and anxiety breakdown in 2005. I was telling uh, the group earlier in the seminar that I was involved in the London bombings recovery response. I happened to be cordoned into uh, the Edgware Road site. Um, I was a first responder and I saw things and heard things and was party to things that I shouldn't really have experienced. And I was a young priest with very little experience of trauma. And my psychological response to that was uh, to have quite a dramatic anxiety-based breakdown. My experience of the church was, it was either a, a spiritualized experience similar to Sharon, where people were trying to cast the devil of hell out of my heart, uh, or they were telling me that I just needed a bit more sleep. There's quite a contrast between those two ideas, isn't there? On one idea, go to sleep. On the other idea, terrified I'm going to be part of some terrible exorcism. It's quite hard to actually think about getting to sleep when you're thinking about an exorcism. So there's a bit of an oxymoron there. But you know, my experience was to find that actually I needed psychological support to make a good recovery. But, you know, that, that, that sort of, the, the reality of my experience is also one of grace. That I needed God's grace to find recovery. That healing came from grace as much as it came through labor. Perfectionism was a core part of a revelation within my own story. How hard I'd been working. I realized there was quite a virtue story I could tell you about being part of a kind of recovery response and you know, supporting the Met Police in a, in, in a terrorist incident. And it would be easy for me to gloss over that story and make it sound virtuous that I experienced a mental health breakdown. I could make my story sound better than it really was. I could hide the fact that I was a perfectionist who'd been working far too hard for far too long and not been taking care of myself because the key energy for me was, can I work for grace? Can I be good enough so God will love me? Can I be impressive enough so I can be approved of by the Lord? I was working for grace, not working from grace. What's interesting in my experience is how many Christians, especially in leadership, experience the same phenomenon. We're amazing at preaching about grace. We're just terrible at receiving it. We're brilliant at telling about the love of God. We're just struggling to know it for ourselves. And you will know this is true for you if you feel like you're the only person in the room who shouldn't really be here. You keep smiling and singing loudly in order that other people go, oh, it's great you're here, fantastic. 
you're amazing. You're thinking, if only you knew. The church in Galatia was experiencing the same sorts of things. This different good news was go no good news at all. Uh, Paul uses the word uh, metastasi, which comes from metastasize, the word we use associated with cancer. That this different good news, this metastasi, this metastasi is, a, is a kind of cancer in the heart of the church, which will move you away from receiving grace towards working for grace. Perfectionism, the best way of describing it. Perfectionism, this, this weighty taskmaster. When I talk about perfectionism in the church, most people think, oh, it's probably a really good thing. I'm, I'm doing really good things as a perfectionist because perfectionism and excellence are the same thing. But I want to be really clear, they're not. You know, good is 50%. That's a bit positive. It's a bit over positive, isn't it? Good. I think average is 50%. Good, good or very good is in the middle there, 75%. Excellent is 100% or perfect. But perfectionism is different to perfect. Perfectionism is the belief that I can never do enough, that it can never be good enough. And I go on and on and on, realizing that I never, ever, ever match up. And I live in deficit, constantly feeling like if only I could receive the grace of God for myself and accept that grace, but no, I have to work against myself all the time. When you talk about perfectionism in the church, people generally think, oh, we're called to be, you know, holy as the Lord is holy. We should try harder and work faster. Christian leaders love perfectionism. It's a bit like on a job application. You know, you get that job application pack, don't you? And the first question is, you know, what are your strengths? It's quite a tricky box to fill because, you know, if you underfill it, you're obviously unemployable. And then if you overfill it, then you're proud. So you have to kind of, the trick is to kind of fill it three quarters full. So there's enough good stuff about you to, to be employable, but not so much that you look proud. And when you've navigated that minefield, then you're into the really tricky box, which is what are your weaknesses? Now, word to the wise, if you don't fill it, you look proud, so you're unemployable in the church. But then if you overfill it, you're also unemployable, so that counts you out too. So you've got to find another way of filling it up, and then everyone goes, oh, I know, um, I'm a perfectionist. I'm going to work for lo long hours for low pay and get everything right. Brilliant. And that sounds a bit strong, doesn't it? And then they just say, I'm a bit of a perfectionist, because that's all the good stuff about perfectionism and none of the bad bits. So that will do. It's amazing how often these things actually come up in job applications. I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And in the church, the leaders are going, brilliant, fantastic, someone who's going to work long hours for low pay and get everything right. They're just what we want. But Paul's saying here, look, this, this metastasis, this non-gospel, this anti-gospel is not how you're called to live. It's not good for your spiritual well-being. It's definitely not good for your mental well-being. It's not good for your faith. And it's not good for your community. Because, you know, if we're ministering for grace, we're ultimately ministering for ourselves. But if we're ministering from grace... We're ministering for others. And if we're ministering for grace, we haven't got the power we need to minister for Christ. But if we're ministering from Christ, we're ministering with Christ's power for the world. Now, that might sound like a kind of confusing set of directions. But the essence of it is, unless we can recognize and receive grace in all its fullness, what have we really got to give away? 
What have we really got for a broken and hurting world? Because we're so busy thinking, well, you know, I need to do better in order that God will love me and approve of me, and therefore I'll be able to then begin this ministry. Perfectionism might sound like a funny topic, but it's deadly serious. Amanda Jenkins, an author in Confessions of a Raging Perfectionist, comments, I've struggled to give and receive grace. You see, grace is at risk so long as we continue to believe that we need to work for love. Psychologist Hewitt and Flett have helped us to clarify perfectionism because it's a kind of a, a big topic that can just be a sort of a, a, a comfortable label. But let's, let's drill it down a little bit. Hewitt and Flett described what they call the multidimensional perfectionism scale as, as three different directions uh, or orientations of perfectionism. They were the self-orientated perfectionists. They say, I'm not good enough, and they're not good enough against their own harsh judgments. Then you've got the other orientated perfectionists. You know, they, they judge others harshly to create a smokescreen of defense against themselves because they feel so badly about themselves. So as long as they point out the faults in others, they feel okay because they're redirecting attention to those people who are not doing so well in their estimation. And then you've got the socially orientated perfectionists. They believe that society or the culture within the church is saying that you're not good enough. And all of these things lead us to become self-referencing. If you look at the ultimate direction of these arrows, it all comes back to me. God hasn't called us to spend 40, 50, 60 years of Christian faith wondering whether we're saved or not. He's called us to spend five minutes working out whether we're saved or not, and 40 or 50 years loving the world as he's loved us. You know, he's called us to redirect our attention, our focus on the world around us because we're so brimming with confidence in the grace that we've received. That's what Paul longed for in the church in Galatia. Not that they were beginning to circumcise themselves as adults, but they'd received a spiritual circumcision that meant that they could then go out and teach the world that God loved them and wanted to save them one by one. Brené Brown, great contemporary psychologist, says, perfectionism is a self-destructive and addictive belief system that fuels this primary thought. If I look perfect and do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. You know, ultimately, perfectionism is seeking to make the world safe by retaining control and withholding vulnerability. Now, I want to bring a word of joy to the church tonight, and I believe that that word of joy is only available to us if we can recognize the power and the hold that perfectionism has over our lives. And what I've noticed in the church at large is that we can be a bit of a smug book when it comes to uh, this idea of perfectionism, because our assumptions is that people have really got the problem and people on Instagram who are taking selfies all the time. And we're tut-tutting going, oh, have you seen this, all this sort of fakery on Instagram? But in church, we've got our own way of expressing our approval. You know, I asked to borrow a Bible earlier, because actually using a Bible looks better than using a smartphone on the stage. Look at the Bible they gave me. It's massive. I've never had such a massive, great Bible in my hands in my whole life. It's impressive. But I just want to confess to you that I asked to borrow a Bible because I thought if I was using my phone, it would look like I was checking Instagram whilst I was also preaching. You know, we do all sorts of small things to make us feel like we look like we belong here, that we're part of this community. But what we look like on the outside, what we were experiencing in terms of mental health conditions or, or disabilities or, or our age or our race or our status or our wealth have no bearing on the truth of whether or not Christ Jesus loved us and died for us. 
You know, we are a diverse community of people because he is a God who loves each and every one of us diversely. And he's called us to be ourselves in his name and to receive grace tonight and let go of this idea that there's another gospel that we can receive that will somehow validate us for the ministry that we're now called. I spend a lot of time coaching leaders and and it terrifies me that I'm coaching leaders in their 60s and 70s who are still asking the same questions of, you know, do you think God loves me? How long have you been a Christian? Well, most of my life. Do you still not know that? But I want to acknowledge that that is still our reality. And many of us will still believe that we've got to keep on going to do certain things in order to demonstrate that we're saved, not to the church, but to ourselves. Now, this isn't a message that says, if you're on any teams, you don't need to do anything anymore. I'd be really unpopular with church leaders if that was the message I was offering. You can imagine everyone who's volunteering will be like, I've heard Will Van Hart's message about perfectionism, and I've decided to stop trying. I'm just going to just going to rest in the Lord and receive grace. That, that is not what I'm saying. Church leaders, hear me when I'm saying. I'm not saying that to your people. What I'm saying is that everything we do needs to come out of the energy of what we've already received. You know, in the world when I'm coaching leaders, I'll ask them what they want because I do a lot of succession coaching. And they'll say, what I really want is security. I'll be like, oh, wow, that's amazing. What sort of security do you want? And they'll like, I just want to be secure. I've just got to work another few years and then I'll be secure. I just need that extra promotion and then I'll be secure. I just need a bit more money in my pension pot and then I'll be secure. In the world, everyone is working for security and the methodology that they use to achieve security is success because success is the commodity of security. If I get more success, then I'll get more security. But what they do not know is that that system is broken. If you want success, get security. Don't try and find security through success. Most of the most insecure leaders that I coach are the most worldly-based success stories. They're deeply insecure. They've got incredible success, but success doesn't promote security. Only security promotes success. If you're deeply secure in your knowledge of the love of God for you, then you will be deeply successful in the ministry that God has called you to. But if you're deeply insecure in the call of grace in your life, you will be deeply insecure in the success of the ministries that God has called you to. How can you truly minister to others if you're really trying to minister to yourself? That's what Paul's calling us towards. Now, ultimately, we have these tricks and traits we believe are gonna kind of validate us. I've got a few little volunteers, they're gonna come out and give me a hand. I've just got, an, it's a boring, I haven't got any sweets for them You'll have to clap loudly because otherwise they'll feel shortchanged. In my church, yeah, come on. <laughs> Hi guys. How you doing? Welcome. Thanks for being here. I, I said you didn't have to say anything. But you just have to check my bag is empty, right? Happy with that? Yep. Happy about empty bag. You're right? Sure. Great. Okay. Fantastic. So, so one of the things that perfectionism does it, is, it, is it, it has this idea that, that actually God's grace really isn't enough. You know, we can't really do anything um, just out of grace, just out of God's power. We've got to add a bit of human effort, a bit of human pizzazz. So, so we have nothing really. We were really dependent on God, and yet we think, well, I've got to work for this. I've got to achieve more. So, so what, I, what I really need to do is to do something. So we've got to get something out of this because we've got nothing to offer. What, what, what are we going to do? What do you want to do? Let's flick, the, let's flick the bag. Flick the bag. Brilliant. Okay. We've done something. We've, we've, we've applied a bit of effort, and therefore we've done something important. And then, so we believe because we've added a bit of effort, we've done something significant, that actually, you know, maybe something exciting might, you know, might, might potentially happen. 
You know, we might end up with something at the end of the day. So, so because we've added and applied some effort, then you can hold on to those flowers, right? Brilliant. Just turn them that the other way. There we are. There we are. So, so, we get, so, so he's flicked the bag and he's got something out. Empty bag. Happy with that? You're still happy? You're happy at the end. Great. So you, well, you flick the bag. Brilliant. Okay, fantastic. So you've done something. Great. So because you've done something, you think you're going to get something out of the bag. So, you know, you want to, you're hoping for something good, aren't you? Great. Okay. <laughs> fantastic. So, you know, because you've done something, you've added something, you think, you think great. Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to get something out of the bag too. Great. So, so you're happy about it. Still empty bags. Still, you're happy about it. Still empty. You want to put your hand in just to check? Yeah. Is it all right? Still empty? So what do you want to do now? They, they both flick the bag. What do you want to do? Flick the bag. Yeah, you're not sure, are you? See, I would say forget flicking the bag. It doesn't do anything. You know, ultimately, flicking the bag is just a waste of time. Because ultimately, if God's going to bring something great out of your life, he's going to do it because of grace. So you don't need to flick the bag if you want to take away some flowers. Do you want to pop them down there? Thanks, guys. You can... Uh, big, big cheer, big cheer. <laughs> you know, one of the weird things about perfectionism is it makes us think that if we do something, something great's going to happen. You know, if we flick the bag. And, and sadly, I mean, this looks innocuous, like if I flick the bag, something great's going to happen. You know, but flicking the bag, oh, goodness, I'm sort of hitched up. You know, flicking the bag is, is not innocuous. For many people, it's a brutal self-recrimination that motivates you to take action. It's a, uh, you're useless, God doesn't love you, you've got nothing to offer, you're weak, you're stupid, you're foolish. It's a, it's a harsh inner critic that talks you down, berates you into action. You know, in the 1970s and 80s, sports psychologists realized that they could make runners run fast by humiliating them. You know, telling them that they, they were going to be destroyed in the public realm if they, you know, if they didn't run fast. And so they would, they would be brutalized by their coaches. And, and they would be told that they'd be made a laughing stock of unless they ran really quickly. And you can motivate a runner through fear. And so, so much of 70s, 80s, and even early 90s sports psychology was rooted in terrifying sports people about the humiliation of being embarrassed on the public stage. But then around the noughties, the turn of the 21st century, what we noticed was that you could motivate runners to run far faster by believing in themselves than by fearing humiliation. And so along came Usain Bolt. He's probably the most self-confident runner that has ever run on the planet and delighted with himself most of the time. And who runs? Who's broken the world record? The, the person who believes that they can run the fastest. Not the person who's busy there hammering themselves day and night about what a worm they are. Now, I want to see revival in the church. I don't think that's going to come through a church that is self-recriminating all the time. I don't think it's going to come from a church that's not sure of itself. Now, this has got nothing to do with pride because pride is confidence in myself. This is all about grace, which is confidence in God's power. What I'm saying is be confident in the fact that whilst we were sinners, whilst we were still far off, Christ died for the ungodly. That is every single one of us here. Grace is already ours. We just don't need to add to it. And really what Paul's saying to the church in Galatia is, why on earth would you add anything to the gospel of grace? 
I'm astounded that you're walking away from this perfect gospel, that you're adding something, this non-gospel, to something that is already complete and absolute and for God's glory. You know, God wants to liberate us tonight from the internalized judgments of perfectionism into the wonder of grace, a grace that's not dependent on our works but on his will. You know, I, I look at the church and I travel around and speak at conferences, you know, and, and I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, what, is, what have we missed? I'd love you to give to the vision of New Horizons because I want you to give in to the reality that unless we give, we won't see what the Lord is going to do because we need to fuel the ministry of grace in order that the world will come to know Christ. You know, invest in this vision, in this mission, but do it confidently knowing that God will not allow us to fall aside from grace. This has to be your personal story as much as it's your collective story. This movement needs to be rooted again in, in, an, in an abundance of the knowledge of God's grace for each and every one of you. And assurance that you're all called to be here right now as part of this glorious and blessed body. This true vine. Now, I was on the strand of the beach. And I, you know, there were thousands of people lining the sand. And I was on my surfboard, I was thinking, this is amazing. Imagine if all these people knew Jesus Christ once again. Imagine if the churches of Northern Ireland were full once again. Imagine if people associated the church with grace and not judgment once again. Now, what would that look like? What would that taste like? Because I can tell you right now, our world is longing for love. And it's lost in judgment. And we're busy saying, oh, I think the world is, you know, profligate and I think you know people have lost sight of morality I want to say they're not profligate they haven't lost sight of morality they're well aside of it but they haven't lost sight of it they're under condemnation they're living in loss they've forgotten their orientation they've lost sight of their true north we need to show them that there's something different going on right here and that's this perfect gospel of grace you know I, I was um I'm working around Kensington and I, was, I cycle a big Dutch bike. It's the only part of my heritage I, you know, I really celebrate every single day. And I was cycling down Ken High Street, which is quite a long, busy shopping street. And uh, on it, there are, there are just hundreds and hundreds of, of, of kind of quite grand um, uh, like night lights and pillars that kind of line the streets, uh, road lights. And, and someone had stuck uh, cat pictures on all of them, going back to cats. And... Um, this is what was stuck. Now, I felt the Lord, it doesn't often happen to me, but I felt the Lord prompting me to pull over and read the sign. And this is a photograph I took of the sign uh, of this lost cat. Now, let me just say, there were probably 500 posters like this lining Kensington High Street for about, about three quarters of a mile, I'd say. So I had seen about 30 or 40 of these before I decided to pull over. And this is what it says, Lost Disco. That's quite a nice name for a cat, isn't it? There's Disco. And so I looked, you know, I thought, oh, that's sweet. Someone really loves this cat. But then I, I read the small print, and it says, it says, um, it says, um, Disco the cat, it says, elderly, 17 years. Now, I've got to be honest, the first thing that crossed my mind was, how long do cats live for? Should I maybe give them a call? Because 84 years, that is, in equivalent human age, and a cat's life expectancy is apparently just 12 to 15 years. So I was kind of thinking, 
You know, you've put up 500 posters. It's a 17-year-old cat that maybe it's not lost. Maybe it's just dead. <laughs> but no, I didn't want to be harsh, so I'll, I'll just read on. But then it says, uh, it says female, but then it says skinny tabby, which I didn't, I didn't again, think that sounded like very healthy. Because it was 17 and it was kind of, it was underweight. But then, then it says, um, so it's not a very good sign. But then it says, on the, on the second line, then it says death. Now, at that point, I'm looking at Kensington High Street with sort of four lanes of traffic, and I'm really thinking, you know, like, it's 17 years old, it's skinny, it, and it's also deaf, and it's also lost on a really busy road in central London. I'm, I'm feeling like less and less hopeful for the owners at this point. But then it says it's a noisy and very affectionate, friendly cat, and again, I started feeling better about it at that point sort of suspended disbelief, really, I guess. So I'm there thinking, if found, please call. And I'm wondering about that pastoral call I could make as a priest and sort of say, hello, um, it's a local vicar here. I saw your poster and, you know, I just want to help you with that process. Of I didn't, obviously, I didn't call. That is a live phone number. Please don't call that number. <laughs> but, you know, whilst, whilst I was there, like... Whilst I was standing there, you're, wearing, you're wondering where on earth this is going, right? But I was standing there, and I was reading this poster, and, and you know, like the, word is, the word of God is the thing that speaks to me most of all. But I, did, I had a sense of the, of the Lord speaking to me, not in an audible voice, but just in my mind. I felt the Lord ask me, "Will uh, who would seek out this cat? Who would seek out this cat? And I was like, you would, Lord. And he said, yes. And I would seek out you. You see, the Lord was saying to me that despite being 17-year-old, skinny, tabby cat who's deaf, lost on a road of four lanes of high traffic, that, that the Lord would put up 500 posters to see that cat come home, metaphorically. And that the Lord would seek out every single one of you, whatever your age, whatever your stage, whatever your ability. In a world that's full of perfectionistic outlooks and, and shiny, bright, smiley people in their 20s, that the Lord would choose you specifically. That he seeks and saves that that is lost. That he wants to welcome you back to equip you and to enable you to a life that he's called you to. In Matthew 11, 28 to 30, it says, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You know, like grace is available to each and every one of us tonight. I'm going to invite the band to come up and come and join me on the stage here. I just want to tell you, I want to make one more challenge. I know I'm seeing my clock is empty. Don't worry, Rick. One more challenge. It's just to live in the light of what you've already got. Put your hands in your pockets for a moment. I don't know what you've got in there. Sweets, your keys, your phone. I don't know. 
kids, baby wipes, something horrible. <laughs> just some, anything. Something you already have. Just, just touch that thing for a moment, that, that set of keys or that phone, and just go, it's something I've already got. And now put your hand on your heart and say to you, Grace, it's something I already have. You know, when my wife and I were, you can, do you want to, you can play something, go on. I'm going to get off the stage. Play me off the stage so get more louder and louder the more time I take. When me and my wife were getting married, my, my wife entered a competition in a magazine for a holiday, a uh, luxury honeymoon of a lifetime. And um, we were walking on the street one day and my a phone went and it transpires that we had won a luxury honeymoon uh, to the Maldives. You think this is, this is not a lie, this is just a real story. Close you don't lie. Um, just to be real. And... Um, and so we, we won this honeymoon, but the, there was a snag. The snag was, it said, it said it was bed and breakfast only. So we were students at the time, so I, I called the island, and I asked them if they had any supermarkets. And uh, the, the, the man said that they didn't have any supermarkets, but they had some luxury goods shops. And I was, that wasn't going to help me. So I said, nowhere to buy food. He said, sir, we've got five luxury restaurants on the island. And I said, well, you know, how much was the sort of baseline price? And it turns out it was way beyond my budget. So me and my wife said, no bother. This is such a blessing. We filled one bag with our swimming suits and our kind of clothes. <laughs> and, and the other bag we filled with pot noodles and Nutri-Grain bars. <laughs> and we were so smug. We went to the airport like this. You know, we roll on. You know, yeah, we're going to the Maldives. We're going to the Maldives. Yeah, we're off our way. We're, way. we're students. We're completely broke, but we are going to the Maldives on holiday. And we went to this place called the Taj Exotica Resort. It was like the, it's the Indian Ocean. We had a house on stilts, like a bathroom with one my glass, fortunately. And, uh, and it was over the sea, and you could see sharks swimming around. And, and every morning, I used to go, I went to the restaurant because of breakfast. So I'd like go in, like really prepped, and I was rowing a lot of the time. So I was straight in continental breakfast, then I was into the you know, Malaysian breakfast, then I was straight into the Maldivian breakfast, you know, I was in the German breakfast with the bratwurst and all the meats, you know, I was looking for the kind of porridge, the lassies, you know, anything I could eat. I was a machine. These guys were looking at me going, this guy's like a whippet, where's he put all this food? <laughs> that was day one. Well, lunchtime, I'm in there having a Nutri-Grain bowl, my, you know, looking over the Indian Ocean. Nighttime, sun is going down. And, uh, you know, me and a cheeky chow mein, spicy chicken, <laughs> like 99p from Lidl, every day we are living the dream in the Indian Ocean. It was amazing. It was incredible. We were so grateful because, you know, this was just, the, uh, and every morning, the guys, the waiters at the breakfast table were like nudging each other. Here he comes, you know. <laughs> Here comes the guy. Look, you've got to watch this guy eat. He's a machine. Well... Final night, we, we bought a couple of things in the bar, like we did succumb, you know, spent a bit more money than we really had. So the final night, Lou said to me, you know, you better go and check what we spent in the bar. And like, you know, the snacks we bought and stuff. So I like tentatively went to reception. I'm like, um, I'd like to check my bill, please. I heard that's what grown-ups do. So, so they print off a bill, like gold-edged, and they put it in an envelope. And I'm standing right there. I'm like, just give me the bill. He's like, put it in an envelope, and then passed it across the table, like a lot of build-up. So I'm like, oh, my goodness, we are going to be broke. And I, I, I'd done some water sports, so on my bill was a water sports thing. So I said, where are the, where are the snacks and stuff we bought at the bar? He said, so what, what do you mean? I said, we well, you know the things we bought at the bar. He said... 
but you're all inclusive. <laughs> he said to me, he said, you can, you can eat at any of our five luxury restaurants, sir. He says, he said, you, you know, you can have room service. You could eat in your room. Have you tried the lobster, sir, in our seafood restaurant? Right? We could have eaten any single restaurant, five restaurants, any meal. We've been there for a whole week. We've been eating Nutri-Grain bars on our bed. Pot noodles from Lidl. It was 10 p.m. It's our final night. We were flying the next morning. That was it. I wonder how many Christians are living on bed and breakfast in the kingdom of God when he's invited you to be full board. Now, you are all inclusive. You've already received it. Why are you still dining on pot noodles and Nutri-Grain bars? Why aren't you living with the confidence of what you've already received? Why are you turning to a different gospel when the gospel we've already received is sufficient for us and for the world in which we're living in? Let's accept grace tonight. And ask God to empower us for a mission, for a calling, to make the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, known to this generation and the next through this ministry here in New Horizons. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.